There's me. Hey, I'm on TV. That's fun, huh? Hey, everybody. How's everybody doing? Lovecraft Country, no good, no good. Very bad. Obviously, first minute of it, there's CGI blood, thumbs down. It's all CGI, so that's already, you have to get over a very large bar to just deal with it, because you're a fucking genre show. I don't care if you have prestige trappings, you're a fucking genre show. That means your effects have to be good, they have to be immersive. They're not, bye-bye. But maybe they could have salvaged that if there was something on top of it that was like textually dense and interesting enough to, to make it worthwhile but in my mind any chance of that happening went out the window when a montage of uh of racial abuse in the 40s of, of white people being racist to black people as they travel across the country was scored to a james baldwin speech i believe uh, his debate with buckley maybe it might have been I mean, for one thing, that's anachronistic, obviously. That happened much later than the, the events of the film. Secondly, I mean, who are they imagining is watching this? How small, how, what kind of guppy-brained children are they pitching this to? Where they have to, it's like, even though the text of every scene is racism. Like, the text of every scene is a racial disparity and racial abuse. And I'm not saying that's necessarily bad, but you have to... With that, with being that limited a palette, you have to like keep it interesting and innovative, and just saying like, oh, you know, I usually use music to you know sort of evoke a subtextual thing. We're just going to add more text on top of the text. I mean, what the fuck? It's just to me, I'm just going to assume that you don't think that I have a brain at that point as a viewer, and so why the hell would I want to watch that? You, you. You don't think I'm very bright, and that probably means you're not too smart either. You don't have enough to say. Uh, yeah, like, being condescended... Because that's the thing, it's not like the level of art on the show is really great. Being condescended to by a dummy is one of the most infuriating things in life, and that's what that show does. So, thumbs down to that. But it also... So, it... it what, but... I'll give it credit, that show helped spark a real, uh, a real revelation to me, and that was I, was, I did a tweet about, oh, the show's got CGI squibs, fuck this. Uh, and of course, a lot of people were like, well, yes, but the show itself is great. No, wrong, incorrect, not great. Uh, or they'll say, well, it's a dream sequence, it's, it's, it's kitschy and stuff. They're all, it's all CGI, so no, that's clearly just the style, that's the aesthetic, so out, out, out with that. Uh, and then, but someone, God bless them, linked a uh, a montage of squib sh uh, a squib hits from movies that's on YouTube and I watched it it was like eight minutes long and I'd seen a bunch of those movies and I was it was kind of fun like picking them out like oh no I know that one I know that one but just watching this this the the, the drama of an actual explosion happening on screen and the unpredictable and viscous uh, physicality of fake blood coming out of a wound and I was like, God damn, that really is, like, why else have someone get shot in a movie as an aesthetic experience? Which is, of course, what 99% of the time is. You're not really moving the plot along. You're showing that because you want to see it. And so that's what shooting is for. And I realized, my God, like, the, the gunfight, the gunfight in movies is doomed. Like, who will ever want to watch people get shot if that's gone? Because that's what makes it interesting. That's what makes it visceral as i've said 
And the movies that don't have that, they just lose. It's like, oh, okay, this is fake. These are kids playing with fake guns. I don't care anymore. Uh, and the, and that was a real challenge, I think, to Hollywood in general. How are we going to make gun-based action, which is one of our bread and butter events, still exciting and visually interesting and aesthetically pleasing, when one of the main elements of the aesthetics of gunfights on movies is gone? And the answer was, we're going to replace it with physical uh, dexterity, smoothness of motion, elegance, grace, basically, human grace, uh, to replace. The, the missing visceral impact of, of real squibs. And that's what the John Wick movies were, did. And the first John Wick movie, one of the reasons everyone loved it, I think, is because it appeared to solve the problem. It said, here, we're going to give you gunfights that aren't going to have the visceral impact of squibs, but are still going to be amazing because of how fast and elegant they are, and how, 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 how quickly they happen. You won't even notice that there's no real blood. You won't even notice that they're not really shooting the guns because it's going to move so fast. And you know what? It worked. I like the first John Wick a lot. I think everybody did. Holy crap, look at this thing. It was like, now we have a solution. But the thing was, like with any kind of, any answer like this, any sort of attempt to patch over a, a key art, artistic, uh, uh, you know, deficit of, of accelerated capitalist cinema... Uh, it ends up becoming a cure-all, and then it no longer works. And I realize this, is that now every one of these movies, every one of these gun-based action movies, has decided, oh, that's how we're going to trick people into thinking this doesn't look bad. By having them do kickflips and grab guys by the head and flip them around, and then shoot them real close, and have, them, and, and have it be very, like, uh, very kinetic. And it's... Now that that's every movie, the horror of it comes into realization. Like, oh God, this sucks. Like, by the time I watch John Wick 3, it's like, not only is it just repetitive, you, and having now seen John Wick 3, and, like, when you see John Wick, that was just that movie. You know, yes, people say, oh, well, what about Equilibrium? It's like, Equilibrium was, like, 20 years ago, and it was an isolated movie that a lot of people made fun of at the time. Gun Kata? It was sort of a joke. And it became a cult classic later, but it did not, it was not the beginner of a totalizing trend the way that John Wick is. And now, since every movie is John Wick, you see John Wick 3 and you're like, oh God, more of this? And now there's going to be two more at least? Every one is going to be, oh fuck, more of this? While everything else just turns into John Wick to hide. It's like putting sawdust in the fucking, uh, in, the, in the flour because you want to make more bread than you, than you have flour for. That's what they're doing. It's, it's fucking, it's sawdust in the flour, it's, uh, it's antifreeze in the wine, it's another way to obscure the, just the, 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 the spiriting reality of having every, everything that we thought of as like the compensatory cultural superstructure that we can enjoy, even as our lives are sort of drilled, d uh, drained of uh, any kind of power over our destinies. No, you don't, that's not even good. That's bad. We can't afford those real bullets. We can't, oh, what, a gun that actually fires? You mean real blanks? What? Okay, you gonna pay for that? Who's gonna pay for it? It's like universal healthcare for movies. And so now it's like, oh yeah, another, but at every level, you can't just take something away. You can't just take something away. You have to offer something that's shittier, but still better than without having the thing that's being taken away. And all the flip John Wick bullshit is the, is the lesser thing now. So I gotta say that uh, I'm now anti-John Wick. Gotta be a thumbs down for me for the entire franchise. And you know what? Hey, that's the way the cookie crumbles. You gotta accept things changing over time. No, action movies are done as a genre. Horror's next. Horror's next. Horror's doing a little bit better. I mean, part of it is the A24 bullshit where there's like... They're not really horror movies, in my opinion. But, like, they, they, they kind of ride around with horror movies and, like, maintain sort of an artistic credibility around them that allows them, people to do things like insist on real effects because horror film hasn't been totally, like... Uh, uh, have, has totally lost any kind of artistic credibility as a genre the way action has. So that means there's still a few good horror movies and they'll still, like, you know, invest the extra for, for real effects. But, no, that's going to be gone, too.
I mean, the only thing, the only good horror movies will be the A24 things where it's like you watch it and you go, was that really a horror movie? Or was it just sort of a, just sort of a very, uh, like a, a, uh, a dark drama or a thriller? It seems almost like a thriller would be more accurate a term than a horror movie. Blumhouse is totally like, first of all, they make the Purge movies and they use CGI bullets in them. So they already are on my shit list. Because The Purge, in my opinion, is a great idea for a, especially an exploitation-style series of films. And uh, they, really, they really undercut the enjoyability of, their, of, of the trashiness of everything when some guy goes down in a fucking bunch of pixels. Yeah, no. Hereditary, for example, that's a horror movie. But Midsommar, I don't really think is a horror movie. Light, see, The Lighthouse is another one. I don't even know if that's a horror movie. I don't really think The Lighthouse is a horror movie either. Yeah, the, the 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 lighthouse is a is a dude's rock. The the lighthouse is guys being dudes. Yeah, there's a real horror movie. It's called The Fucking News. Uh, speaking of horror movies, we're going to be streaming the uh, the DNC second night tonight at nine or eight thirty. I think we're going on. But we're going to be there for the opening gavel, the opening Zoom gavel for the opening monster uh, shithole garbage fuck that we're going to get to see. Does Clinton go tonight? I hope Clinton gets tonight. At the day after the picture, of, or the day, yes, the day the picture of him getting massaged by an Epstein victim on the flight to Africa gets revealed. Good, that'll be fun. Oh, we're going to have some riffing to do on that one. Oh boy. God damn, we might have to empty the notebooks for that one. They're putting him on stage. Just the insanity of this. A guy who is a close personal fucking friend to a serial pedophile, a world, a world-spanning human trafficker with connections to the highest levels of power, including, by the way, the evil president that we all hate, Donald Trump. And this asshole hangs around with him. There's pictures of them yucking it up on the private planes. Bend of the, the, the island. And Zorro, by the way, let's not forget uh, Zorro Ranch, where apparently they went for Christmas or something every fucking year and brought Chelsea one time. Sickos. And this guy's still the big dog that these guys pant over and are just enraptured to because he, he managed to win two elections. Wow. Well, amazing. He was able to basically show up at the right moment to ride the credit, the fucking... Uh, nascent tech bubble of the 90s to two terms uh, just watch watch the tide of history turn towards reaction and just go hey what if we did that too that's his brilliant innovation to politics that means we have to worship him for the rest of our lives hey what if we just did what the republicans do because that's what people seem to like that's the easiest solution you could possibly give to an answer in any kind of, uh, uh, like, brainstorming session. It's like, these guys are kicking our ass. What to do? Well, why don't we just do what they do? And usually that's the wrong answer because doing that kind of undermines everything else. But he didn't give a shit about that. He wanted to be in the fucking power, and he did it. And I think that's something that gets underlooked when we talk about the way these guys, like, reckon politics. When they're talking about what's pragmatic to get things done, what, they, what the, the unstated assumption is not uh, is that they are the ones getting the things done. The, the, the assumption is that they, no matter what, they will be in power. 
they assume the position of centrality to the process because for them politics is an expression of their their ego. That's why they're in that position. That's what motivated them to get into politics. Someone has to take that job. It gets taken by people who self-select towards that, uh, that psychological structure, that need. And what that means is that if they get into a situation where, oh, the, the, uh, the, you know, the Democrats before me made this pact with the devil to uh, balance, uh, to end inflation on the backs of the American working class and not, no longer be able to offer them any kind of meaningful economic uh, intervention, we've essentially ceded the economic ground of politics completely, and we're going to have to completely be, uh, depend on culture war uh, and like identity-based uh, influences and, and corporate money uh, to maintain relevance. Oh boy, uh, that's shitty. What do I do? Well, most people when they're asking that question are trying to do it from the perspective of a country. Like, what could we do together to like move this ship away from the iceberg? Uh, and a person who is psychologically fixated on assuming power does not think that. They think, well, what do I have to do to use the level of power in front of me, the Democratic Party in this case, in order to gain power in this situation? And so for the people who were in charge of the Democratic Party in the early 90s, they, when they tell you this is what we had to do, they're not lying. This is what they had to do. If they were going to wield power, it was going to be under those conditions. But the thing is, that's not... There's, there's a greater interest that they're not considering, which is what most people who don't imagine themselves in those positions are imagining when they imagine the we or who, like making decisions. That's the problem with a representative structure, is that, is that you're concentrating the, the will of whatever organized political coalition that can exert power in the ballot on one individual or, or a bunch of individuals but concentrated into individuals like the president specifically, and you know members of uh, the and specifically the federal uh, government, and those people are going to be uh, motivated by an underlying assumption that they have to be in the room, and that means compromise is always going to be what they say, uh, because anything else might involve them losing. And that certainly can't happen. King Hobo DNC, what's that? Who's King Hobo? I didn't see that. I saw, I saw the fucking uh, the Stephen Stills Billy Porter thing about where they did some weird like rem funk remix of for what it's worth with him voguing wearing uh, some sort of dracula cape oh king hobo is Kasich. okay i didn't watch it i just saw he looked like he was at a baseball field uh oh my god that was amazing because it really reminds you is that politics now it's just like the level at the level of the spectacle of our little rock'em sock'em robot puppet show that we love so much the people actually in charge of the controls the literal channel changers for what we get to fight over are just a bunch of old people, a bunch of senior citizens uh, who lived through the 60s litigating whether or not they were groovy. That's it. It's all just re-arguing the 60s cultural split because they, they, all else has been foreclosed. First by you know the, the, the changing of uh, the party structure's relationship to the market in the 70s, the introduction of what they call neoliberalism. Uh, and then, of course, they're just aging and reactive brains, like, no longer being able to, to, to process reality as it happens, being much happier to live in their past, like Joe Biden, all of these people. They're thinking back. Joe Biden's, that's how you know Joe Biden's brain is really gone, because he's in the 50s. These people are in the 60s because, you know... Uh, that's how progressed the, the, the collective senility is. But Biden is, of course, because he is their tribute and he is their concentrated will, he is the most senile. And so he's already back in the 50s. He's already back banging the, the razors to get him rusty in the, in the rain barrels. So uh, once again, we get Stephen Stills, 900-year ass, fucking noodling on a guitar, and this guy singing this song that's just from fucking Vietnam War movies. 
just to get the get the blood stirring in these people who just want to have one more chance to go to the polls and say in the in the face of a fucking society falling apart around them through 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 their direct connivance and and absolute uh, blithe indifference for the most part uh, that actually no man uh, the '60s it was about peace dude it was about peace and love. I'm going to go out there and vote for Joe Biden, who, who thinks that it's actually about Hepcats being able to take their main squeeze to the sh- soda shop. No, neoliberalism is, is, is Tina, I, in my opinion. Neoliberalism is the, full, is the full logic of the market unleashed on all society, which is only possible in a context where there is no alternative to it where its energies can, are no longer constrained by having to battle like an, a, a different system to compete. It no longer has to compete. And so like in the, in the, in, in the economy, that leads to monopoly. And they're, they're in the monopoly stage now. Uh, it's, it's, and, they're, uh, and as such, they can move inward and, and take that like, market uh, logic and apply it to everything. And that's, and, and Carter, Carter, Carter was the guy who, in terms of, if you want to talk about like one figure who embodies the whole process, he was the guy who on behalf of a democratic party that had lost its connection to the working class in any meaningful way. And the working class had lost their ability to, to influence and direct, uh, the, the first, the democratic party, and then a large enough section of the American people willing to vote for that party, uh, we're no longer able to exercise enough power. And the big economic questions that used to dominate politics, universal health, uh, like direct government provision of, of resources, the extension of government provision of resources into other areas of life, nationalization is a real priority of the state. The creeping, the creeping uh, socialism that really does happen, or, or can happen anyway, uh, in, or is, is, is theorized to happen, uh, in social democracies that keep making these, you know, non-reformist reforms that keep pressing things until a point of crisis, at which point, if you've assembled sufficient uh, state capacity dem- uh, expressed through sufficient organizational capacity as the class project, you can then push it over the Coke machine. Uh, like, Sweden looked like they were getting to that point when the Meidner plan was introduced as a possible... Uh, roadmap towards the state consolidation of of the economy in Sweden uh, through the 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 direct what the Meidner plan basically said is that uh, instead of paying cash taxes, corporations are going to have to have, give a percentage of their stock to the state every year, and it's and that's not going to be like you give it once and it's ever every year. So that means the state gains stock over time and eventually contains has complete control. That's the kind of thing that was potential. And the, the U.S., of course, was not in any position to, uh, to do anything that dramatic because of how re, uh, relatively retarded our social democratic path was relative to Europe, but especially relative to the Scandinavians. But there was still stuff like, like Nixon was talking, Nixon proposed a universal health care plan that is to the left of anything we have now or proposed by Democrats, shy of Bernie. Uh, and... And Teddy Kennedy rejected it because they thought they could get the real thing. That's how close they felt they were. Universal free college was a real thing on the possibility on possibilities. Um, and in every country, the crisis moment came, and because the, the because of the arrangement of forces, because the insufficientness of the working class to exercise political authority through the closest instrument it had, whatever that might be, led to capital taking over. Now, you could argue that that was inevitable, that you can never get, uh, get there through the electoral process, and that's proof of it. Uh, I'm not, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of agnostic on that point. Uh, but I do know that a crisis moment, ha- the crisis point came, emerged, which was theorized. Uh, the, 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 the victory of capital... Uh, being inevitable, the victory of capital being inevitable, that is what I'm not sure of. I don't know if it necessarily had to go that way. Uh, but of course, then you get into counterfactuals. 
I, did, I would say plainly that obviously, given the conditions we had, it couldn't go any other way. But the question is, to what degree were there people and forces that could have changed the direction? At what point could the river have been flowed, like changed its, its course? Uh, and I'm not sure. I, that's why I feel, uh, uh, I, do, I do enjoy, I, that's why I feel basically agnostic. And I feel like that's kind of, the, like, that's where, like, history, even if you have a dialectical understanding of the, the you know, materialism, it, it, none of it is, is uh, that doesn't make everything self-evident. It still has to be investigated. I would say, like, whether anybody could have punched through that, uh, that logjam in the West, anyway, through the electoral process, I don't know. But I would say that the 70s were the moment when the contest was definitively won by capital, which has, means that the neoliberal era is the era of hegemonic capitalist victory over the political process. Like, if you want to, that, that's, I think that's as good a definition as any. It is when, it is when, it is when, uh, like the, the libertarian conception of the state, the, 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 the uh, yeah, becomes the undergirding political principle, the governing ideology, as it were, of both parties, meaning that there is no longer a meaningful political vector for alternatives to libertarian uh, state notion emerging. So that's what I would say. Getting sunny on me here. Uh, this brings me to something that I've wanted to talk about. I hope it doesn't get too goopy and abstract, so bear with me and tell me if I'm sounding a little uh, too out to lunch. But I wanted to talk there more about the concept that we now and love and know, know called ideology. Yes, of course. What do we speak of when we speak of ideology? And there's a bunch of different definitions because there's ideology in different contexts and there's ideology as like the undergirding uh system that generates a, that's generated by a material relationship and that structures the politics and the culture uh then there's self-conscious ideology is in what we think of as our politics that's different too uh but i want to start at the basic level with what what ideology uh what purpose ideology, ideology serves in the, in the mind? What, what, what bridge does it, what, uh, what function does it carry out in the establishment of the self out of just the, 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 the data that our bodies perceive? Because that's all we are. It's just a big thing absorbing. At least as far as we know, our brains are just the thing that absorbs what is given, what, it, what's, what, is, what its sensor organs pick up in the thing around it. And then that is then turned into an understanding of the world that includes an understanding of the self and relationship to the world. And ideology is, I would say, the way that we bridge the gap between two different uh, but, but distinct but linked and, and, and completely codependent concepts of self-interest. So... There's two types of self-interest in, in, in social species uh, like humans, specific more, humans more than anyone. And that is one, you have the perceived interest, the narrow interests, physical and then, you know, like basal, id-related interests of the self. Like first there's, you know, pure self-preservation in terms of preventing death and injury and then the satisfaction of urges that arise from uh, the, the task of staying alive. Like, that, that's, like that's the id. But, even though our understanding of humans is that is the sum total of, human, I, the, of the human uh, self, is that id, and then the stuff that we wrap around it, and that's us, and it's independent, and we're all independent. Uh, that's not true. Uh, you can talk all you want about survival of the fittest, but once, uh, once an animal in a species gains a certain degree of complexity of its, its, its social arrangement and its ability to communicate, communicate to itself, and then communicate outward to other members of the species, uh, the more 
a, it creates a new vector, a, a, a complementary vector of evolution, which is social evolution. And it, 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 there, 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 there's an equilibrium point at which, even though everyone has an individual id with an individual self-interest, all interests are mutually advanced by cooperation. And ideology is negotiating the gap. How do we square having an individualized desire, which could be, you know, that guy's got a chicken, I want that chicken. You know, that guy's uh, got a wife, I want that wife. The Hobbesian state of nature. How do we, how do we uh, assimilate this abstract notion of self-interest, which we can recognize through trial and error, we will recognize that it, there is a necessary social component to life, uh, and then we have to pursue it. But how do we convince ourselves? How do we put the I into the we in such a way that we can subordinate to it? And ideology is, is, the, is the structure of that relationship. And I would say that the dominant Western ideology, the, the ideology undergirding uh, the capitalism, or our response to living in capitalism, rather, uh, and steadily taking over the world, is one where the relationship is, is that there is only the, the I, there is only the id, and then there is this social stream of otherness, which we contract to engage with strictly to our advancement. And then any kind of social question, like how does that, how does that allow everyone else to advance? Because remember, there has to be a social component to, to existence. They would say, no, if everybody is self-interested, the collection of that self-interest by negotiating it through a frictionless market without, with no latency of transmission of information will rise all boats at once. Of course, that's absurd because we are not one. Uh, even though we perceive the social dimension of our persistence more abstractly than our id, it is in reality as important. It's, it's co-equal. And, it, and what that means is that society is co-constitutive of what we think of as ourselves. Like, think about language. Think about how much our thoughts and our minds and our conceptions, our, our deep, deep dreams are structured by the language we, we are born with. We don't have any choice in that. That literally structures our entire mind, and it is, comes from outside, and it comes from the collective decisions of people we've never met before. And it is co-constitutive of our perceptions, our individualized perceptions, which are filtered through these structures that are socially fucking formed. It's co-equal. And, ideal, and, and, and uh, that is why I think like socialism, properly understood, the ideology of socialism... You know, I'm saying as an abstract concept, not as, as something that is generated, something you act to create with the create in the world, but whatever you create is not going to be quite what you wanted, but it might move you in that direction and it'll create a new ideology. I'm saying the abstract ideology that you operate from uh, should, in my opinion, be one that acknowledges the self as socially constructed. Like, and not just constructed, constitutive. Like society is me at a fundamental level. And I think if you actually absorb that reality, as opposed to just as something you mouth, uh, it, it reduces a lot of the inherent conflict in, in our notions of what socialism could be. The things that say like, well, you know, people are always going to want to get ahead. People are always going to want to, you know, have more money than their neighbor and stuff. It's like, yeah, but that is because we operate from an ideology that assumes we are individuated. That, that is the fundamental capitalist ideology, and it is, a, it is essentially psychosis. If you want to get like, specific, if you want to get dramatic again, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I think you could argue that in the in the sense that it is radically fractured away from the reality that they're living in, like and, and a real reality, a fundamental reality that under like that's why we're here. Obvious. The only reason human existence exists is because of that. And capitalism is us trying to chop our arms off. That's what we're doing. It's insane. Uh, social suicide caused by a deluded, psychotic sense of self. That's the ideology of capitalism. That's the ideology that is generated by turning every relationship into a transaction between strangers. Eventually, you lose all social forms as you lose 
uh, investment in social forms as having meaning and pile all meaning into personal indulgence. It turns you into a little psychopath. It turns you into an instrument of pure desire, which means pure competition with those around you, which means eventually destruction of all, common ruin of the contending classes. That's, and that is the social animal that is man gnawing at itself because it's basically got a fucking, uh, it's got a, it's got a, a rabies. It's got a fucking infection. That's overheating its brain. And the thing is, is that capitalism serves a role. You know, capitalism is a healthy bacteria at one point in that it facilitated the, the, uh, the concentration of capital that was necessary to allow humankind to come into awareness of itself. The problem with humankind is that over time it stretches and stretches and the possibility of, tra of transcending the abstraction of space and time to imagine that we are all part of one species, a true species with a species being and a spirit, a collective spirit, that necessitates a degree of, of technological transmission and ease of life, most of all. A, 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 a ease of, um, of social exchange, where labor uh, and, ex and, labor and uh, subsistence, uh, the, the linkage has been severed, allowing for like, the full flowering and development of human consciousness. Uh, and that's only, that's only possible under a socialist conception of society. Uh, because over time, the need for those distinguishing indulgences goes away because you can f there's, there's actual worth, there's value that is not to be found, literally, there's, there's, there's non-market value, which we don't have right now. Without, if, there's, if, if the only value is to be found on the market, but the only, the only worth of self, the only, the only pleasures of the life, the only pleasures of a, of a spiritless li world, life in a world where God is dead and we replaced him with nothing except fear of the devil. Like, nobody believes in God, but we're all afraid of dying, which means we're all afraid of hell, essentially. So we killed God and left the devil. And so in that world, what is to be done but piling up lucre for yourself, distracting pleasures of self? And then see all everyone else is competing for those in a, in a world of dwindling resources. If you believe that there's a value to social, to social life, you create structures that allow social life to thrive. That, get, that don't require people to, uh, to flee to self-indulgence as a sucker. Because there's no lack, there's no hole to be filled the way that we have created a hole. And I think there has to be some place for religion to help in, the, in terms of, if you're going to create like an ideological bridge, like a self-conscious ideology that could, that could break this, this suicidal logjam, it's going to have to involve the language of religion and spirituality because that's what people organize their minds and, and, and identities around. And you can define, it depends on how you define ideology. There's one way you can define ideology where, yeah, like what I'm describing, that's not ideology because that's just, that's a social life as it should exist. You know, it's, it's act, the actual harmonious existence of humans. The problem is you have to burrow through, you know, the, the, the millennium of human development to get there. And maybe you won't. Uh, because of the intervening reality of ideology, emerging and reifying pathological uh, mistakes, pathological er accruing errors created by a, uh, a, a rapidly uh, expanding world of in uh, just a desacralization of, of, of life, I guess I would just say. Because the things... The processes are contained, I mean, in the sense that they don't kill everybody, but they're clearly unstable. The process has to be regulated.
And that's why as much as like the trad Nazi types think, oh no, I've solved it. I've solved this. I've recognized the problems of capitalism, but I've just replaced uh, the self with uh, the people, the Volk. I've replaced the self as the locus of all, you know, meaning with uh, my fantasy idea of a people. But what a coincidence. I'm picking the people who are most like me because I am using the concept of a social life to just recreate the individual self on a larger scale. Like Hitler was not trying to subsume himself into the social reality of, of German existence. He was trying to suborn German existence to him, to become an expression of him. And that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's what fascism angles towards. Because even if you create your, your beautiful corporate, uh, corporate state, it's going to have to define itself against others, internal and external, who have to be destroyed. And that process continues over time, regardless of whatever happens. You win the war, you have to start another one. You will destroy yourself. Because you are, at the end of the day, not engaging in a, in a move towards the sort of degradation of ego away from individual market expression of self towards a social... Uh, relationship with others, a contextualized self. Uh, if you're not doing that, you are steering it towards eventual mutual annihilation, leaving none. Couldn't you say you're somewhat doing the same thing? What sa same thing as what? Same thing as who? I would like to know, because I'm trying to figure out what you mean. Like the way I, the thing that really made me reminded me about the reality of that, like how ethno nationalism can never stabilize and will always destroy itself, and that it's not because you could argue, because like the libertarian, the fantasy, the the fantasy, the ideological fantasy that undergirds the libertarian sense of self is, if everybody works towards their own advantage over time, and you remove uh, you remove barriers to to tr to exchange, everyone will advance. Now that's not true. But that's what they think. It's ideological. It's deeper than thought. You know, it's just it's it's a it's a motivator that they don't even know is there. Um, but we know that that's destructive. And like the fascist notion is that you recognize that, but then you say, oh no, we can all get together if we are operating out of, uh, you know, the self-interest as our, ourselves conceived as part of some Volk. Well, in in that case, the only competition at that level has to be war, which is what they sought. Uh, and even if you win all the wars, you have to define yourself against another so an other emerges from within, depending on whatever crises are being created by your uh, you know, unstable economic model, which is capitalism, which is going to drill through the world's resources eventually and uh, leave you in a position of unsustainable crisis of distribution. Uh, and the one thing that made me think of that most recently is John Cornyn, a senator from Texas, early on in, in uh, the COVID, was asked about, you know, hey, what about this COVID thing? Seems pretty serious, because he was talking about, fuck it, you know, open up, we got to save the economy. And he was saying, well, you know, the people who are dying are people who are older, people with heart disease and stuff. And he's not necessarily talking at that point about, oh, you know, they're poor black people or they're poor Mexicans. He's just talking about, like, his constituents. And in a state like Texas, where everybody has heart disease... I think it's like uh, the state flower is arterial sclerosis. And he's talking about people who are unlucky enough to get the thing. Because at a certain level, you have to like break off from a group and determine it other in order to redefine the self. It's the only, it's the only way, thing that keeps you in a vacuum conscious of yourself is by recognizing distinction. That's why the idea of like a sensory deprivation is so terrifying to people. Because... It's you alone, but eventually you lose the sense of self because you're not comparing it to anything. 
and that means that the, the that the that the ethno state will eventually destroy itself either by overexertion or by turning inward. That's the death drive that undergirds uh, undergirds fascism, and because they both and there's a death drive that undergirds capitalism more broadly, and both of them are embedded in this notion that you can be an individual person on this planet. That you there, that there's something called an individual human being. That there is a meaningful, that's a meaningful category. Like, to, to, to distinguish a person at a level beyond just to note that this is a distinguishing feature of a greater, you know, s- social organ. That's why I thought was uh, good about the book, The Man in the High Castle, which it has the Nazis and the Japanese as... as world-spanning empires with no, no enemies to see uh, in the 60s, and they're still going to have a nuclear war. It's inevitable. They will destroy each other. They have to. I, uh, on, the, on the fascism thing, I remember I saw a map some Nazi had made of Europe, and it showed it where all the countries were under the rule of whatever like weird, you know, uh, crypto-Nazi party is in that country, you know, like the true Finns or whatever. What if they ran every country? And it was just supposed to be like, oh, this is a dream, oh. If that happened... Every one of those countries will go to war with every other one over, like, irredentist territorial claims. Sure, yes, of course, they would cleanse all the Muslims. But what do you think they would do after they did that? Or as they did that? You don't think that Alsace-Lorraine comes back into play if, like, the fucking uh, National Front and the... It wouldn't even be the uh, AFD. It would probably be farther left, right than that. In Germany, take over. Foe out of here. Uh, someone wants to know about the death drive. I would say that the death drive is the brain's way of uh, just coping with the irreconcilable phenomena of being an individual consciousness that is both the sum total of existence and also fi- uh, aware of its own finitude. Mortal. Self-consciously mortal. Is that, and that is that the closer you cling to your individuated being... The more uh, the more fraught and horrific life becomes, the more the more the more the, the, the experience of life is undermined. Like pleasure is, is is literally sapped out of the world by due to the overweening anxiety 
of you know, the consciousness of, of, of time progressing and your awareness coming toward an end. A thing that a mind cannot conceive of because it cannot conceive of anything that it is. It's, it's the opposite of everything it's ever experienced. It can't handle that. And so life becomes misery. And so, but, but because what makes us miserable is that we can't hold on to life, we don't want to kill ourselves. But deeper, where we can't even get at, we want to die. We want to end this, but we don't want to know it's coming. We want to, we want to end it. And so we act in ways that will bring about the end. Reasonable inter... Oh, is that something else? Man, somebody's really mad at Gnosticism. Are there any Gnostics around? In terms of people who are doing the practice of it? Weird people to get mad at. Oh, somebody asked me this on Twitter, and now they're repeating it. The most cringe VP, vice president. That's an interesting question, because all vice presidents, the ones who didn't become president anyway, are inherently cringe, because look at you. Look how close you came, you schmuck. You frickin' zadrool. Uh... Losers. You got so close, couldn't get it. So they're all cringe, like, ooh. And then, the, and the, especially the ones who ran and lost. So guys like Gore, mega cringe. Mega cringe. Al Gore is highly cringe. Uh, so I'd say anybody who ran and lost, uh, any VP who ran and lost is cringe. Which is why one of the things that makes Nixon cringe, even though he was president, is that he was also somehow one of those losers, even though he eventually won. Uh... John Nance Garner's pretty cringe. The guy was two terms under uh, VP under FDR. Hated it every minute. He's the guy who famously said the president, the vice president, ain't worth a bucket of warm piss. And worst of all, it was because he represented the Southern reactionary segment of the Democratic Party, and he just watched in horror as those uh, East Coast fancy lad New Dealers ran roughshod over the place. And he was going to go in there and clean house because he was assuming, like everybody, that you only do two terms. Uh, but Franklin, uh, F, good old FDR, got in that end of that convention, and he didn't trust any of those other horses to carry, carry, you know, the the ferry across the river. So he's, he he did it, and uh, after telling Garner he wouldn't, and he was pretty pissed. So he got owned. There was a guy named Richard Mentor Johnson who was Van Buren's VP, who was wildly scandalous. Uh, mainly because he, uh, I mean, this isn't cringe in the present moment, of course, but it certainly would have been cringe at the time. Uh, he, like many slave owners of the day, uh, he, uh, had a relationship of one kind or another, uh, with a slave, uh, and children by her. But unlike those guys who kept it on the down low, you know, taking the candle to the back room or whatever... He, uh, had, he, I don't think he married her, but he had her like as a public consort, and it was scandalous. I would say that Henry Wallace is pretty cringe. Definitely. Uh, one, because, God, he got so close. If, they, if, if, if FDR died a little earlier, or the right-wingers hadn't uh, foisted Truman onto FDR at the convention, he could have been president. But the thing is, he was kind of a goofus. I mean, it's known now that the entire progressive party that he ran on, that they kind of like spun up out of nowhere for him to run on, the, the platform of, was just entirely shot through with communists. Uh, and, you know, a lot of, of course you go, that's epic, that's cool, that's epically cool. Uh, but the thing is, the one guy on earth who didn't know that was Henry Wallace. He was, he was a genuine, like, good government, progressive type from the Midwest, like, he was a farm expert. Just a fucking, he was a, he was a nerd. He didn't even know that he was sort of being moved around uh, by, by Moscow. 
which again, hey, if he'd gotten into the be, be the presidency, if he'd gotten into the presidency uh, and like set the course of the Cold War differently, you know, that's a real counterfactual that might have genuine valence in terms of changing the larger uh, direction of, of history. Cheney is based as hell. Cheney's not cringe. Come on, the guy ran the entire show by himself. He fucking took his house off of Google satellite views. He had a man-sized safe in his office. He suggested himself for his job and then took over the other guy's job. Nothing cringe about Cheney. Evil, yes, but, but not cringe. William Rufus Devane King died two months... He never even got sworn in. He died in, uh, in, uh, in Cuba of yellow fever and malaria or something. Uh, the other thing about William Rufus Devane King is that he was noted in Washington for his flamboyant appearance, dress, and affect. Uh, and when you read the way people talk about him, uh, it's pretty clear if you read between the lines that he was a... Uh, he was kind of a... He was a fancy man, I guess you'd say it. He was, he was fabulous, I guess you, you'd, call, you'd call it. Uh, his, 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 uh, his nickname in Washington was Miss Nancy. That'll give you an idea. Uh, Andrew Jackson called him Miss Nancy, uh, and James Buchanan, who was a good friend of his, uh, Aunt Fancy. So, they were, uh, they were, boy, they were boyfriends. William Rufus Devane King and, and James Buchanan were probably boyfriend and girlfriend, boyfriend and boyfriend. So that's not cringe in 20th century standards, by, by, by 21st century standards, but it was probably pretty cringe at the time. Uh, and then he died before even really taking office. Also cringe. Hubert Humphrey is pretty cringe. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ooh, that's got to be high on the list. So Hubert Humphrey was a guy who, super ambitious, sort of a northern, northern uh, LBJ, at least in like his, his, his clear craving for high office. He was the boy mayor of Minneapolis. He famously got the uh, Dixiecrats to walk out of the DNC in 1948 uh, for giving a speech about putting a civil rights plank into the, into the party platform. Uh, then he became a senator from Minnesota, he was a favorite of the AFL-CIO, uh, and he ran for president in 60 against uh, Kennedy, and he just got blown off the stage by the glamour. There's a great uh, documentary called Primary, about the Wisconsin primary in 1960, which a lot of people thought was going to definitely be Humphreys because he was considered like the third senator from Wisconsin because he was always... Uh, a guaranteed vote on all of the dairy price support legislation that Wisconsinites cared about very, very much back then. They still do, but not as much as they used to. We had a guy, Herb Cole, who was fucking senator for life, basically, because he was the guy in Washington who made sure that the fucking, uh, that the milk stayed above a certain price. So, uh, and then LB, and then Kennedy is this, you know, jet-setting uh, East Coast Catholic guy in a state that, even though you've got Catholics, obviously, in Milwaukee, uh, has a large, you know, rural Protestant population. Uh, and there's this footage of poor Hubert Humphrey and like a VFW hall in rural Wisconsin going, I'll tell you about this, Kennedy. He doesn't know an ear of corn from a ukulele. But then you see Kennedy in, in Milwaukee, you know, surrounded by a bunch of uh, Bavarians and, and, uh, and Polacks just like losing their shit. Uh, and, and he won. He won. He, and they won in West Virginia, which was huge. Of course, uh, the Teamsters helped him out there. But so he was an ambitious guy, got to be LBJ's VP, got bullied by LBJ the whole four years, basically forced by LBJ to take his and run for president with his Vietnam policy. Like, that was the condition of Johnson's support to Humphrey for the nomination, which, of course, he had to wrest from the dead grip of, of RFK at the fucking convention in the face of a giant police riot uh, and screaming and, 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 and a tumult within, um, the condition for LBJ supporting him was 
you better fucking take my my position, even though he didn't really believe in it. And so he had to fucking flog, uh, he had to flog that dead dog of LBJ's Vietnam policy until the fall, when he finally, last month ago, he stopped supporting it and called for a moratorium on bombing and like, uh, you know, a, a peace pursuit, like being, being prioritized. And he's, he actually had been way in the, in the back in the polls and he kind of climbed. He almost, and then the, the election itself was very, very close. Uh, if you look at it, Nixon won the, the electoral college pretty convincingly, but the actual vote total was, was, it was almost a tie. I mean, it was not, it was in 1960, but it was very, very close. Uh, and it could have gone the other way very easily, especially if Humphrey had gotten out of, MB, out of LBJ's pocket a little earlier. So by virtue of just being a cringing toady who ended up going down, a guy who really was a very principled dude, his, his early career was like a civil rights stalwart and also a, a labor, uh, a, like a labor first guy who's, who's like pres- providing, his presiding... Um, Political obsession was to create full employment in America through like a guaranteed federal jobs program, which was something that uh, the right fought tooth and nail uh, until it was finally passed uh, in during the Carter administration. But by that point, it had its entire uh, actual enforceability and meaning drained from it. So loser, big old loser. Uh, and Nixon, it's funny, Nixon actually, uh, LBJ actually played footsie with Nixon during the campaign because he worried about Humphrey stabbing in the back on Vietnam because at that point he was psycho- psychopathically obsessed with protecting his legacy on Vietnam and his position. So he was willing to fucking... That's how far he'd go, he went to make sure that Humphrey stayed on team. So he just... He whipped his ass down the fucking campaign trail until he finally was able to get out from under it, but it was too late. Absolute uh, cringe. Pence is incredibly cringe. I mean, come on. To just be such a colorless cipher, known mostly for being an absolute suppre- repressed Christian freak, uh, while this guy's president? Come on. Pathetic. Dan Quayle is very cringe. He ran for president, too, just not after that. He ran in uh, 2000 and got no votes. So Dan Quayle, he was an actual just punchline. He was only known nationally for being just a dumb goofus and for spelling potato wrong. <coughs> so he's definitely very high on the list. The first guy I think of, really, is, is Quayle. Quayle and Pants, both from Indiana. Man, what a dire presidential state. So they've got two of the most cringe pre- vice presidents ever. And their one president, William, he- William Henry Harrison, A, wasn't from Indiana, and B, fucking died his ass because he drank poo-poo water a month after being uh, fucking uh, inaugurated. He shitted out his doo-doo ass. Can you believe it? There's only one answer to the question most cringe presidential candidate. There are many contenders. George Romney, Mitt's dad, very high on that list. Uh, Mitt Romney, also high on that list. Uh, Adley Stevenson, of course. Anybody who ran more than once, they get the stink of loser on them, like the Buffalo Bills or the, or the Vikings. So Adley Stevenson, Henry Clay, William Jennings Bryan, losers. Bob Dole, guy ran his whole life. Uh, but I don't think any of them compare to number one on, with a bullet. Oh, Hillary's on the list, of course. Hillary's highly cringe. Hillary may be number two. Number one, with a bullet and an exclamation point, Jeb. George, John Ellis Bush. Just, please clap. You can't, can't beat it. Can't beat it. And when you consider how much money he spent per delegate in that, which is, I think, by far the largest amount ever. He spent like a, he spent like, he got like two delegates, I think, and he spent over $100 million. I believe that's like the quick math there. So it's something like $15 million a delegate. After coming from the pole position, after, and, and be, like not being like some crank millionaire who spends his own money, being the inside track guy. 
And he was the young, he was the loved brother, son. He was the good guy. He was the one who followed the rules. Well, George was out gallivanting and snorting coke in the fucking cockpit of a fucking A-10 war dog. This guy was studying the blade. He learned Spanish. Uh, he went to campaign. He went to Puerto Rico with his with his with his uh, Mexican wife to like campaign for uh, his dad when he was running against Reagan in 1980. While George did nothing, and who got to be president for four for eight years? Who got to be president? Goofus, not Gallant. Gallant gets to show up eight years later after his fucking family's name is shit. Because of how badly his dumbass brother fucked everything up. And all because he lost his first race. Lawton Childs is who we have to thank for that. Lawton Childs beat him uh, for governor in his first run, which threw off the timetable. And he was in his first term by, uh, in Florida. It took him that long to get back in, which was not enough time. Whereas George had already had two terms in Texas because he, he went like two years later. If he'd gotten it then, if he'd gotten the Florida presidency then, or the Florida, uh, uh, the Florida governorship then, he would have been the candidate in 2000. Now, maybe he doesn't win in 2000. There's an interesting counterfactual, because there is something to George Bush's just frat boy, dipshit charisma. Like, I always hated him and never thought he was charming, because he is just like a bully. He's like a rich bully asshole, but that's an archetype that a lot of people like. Jeb is sort of absolutely without character. He's, he's drained. He doesn't even have sort of the towering noblesse oblige of his dad. Like, his dad is obvious, was obviously a weenie, you know, they called him a wimp and everything, uh, this, this blue blood. But he also just had this imperious authority that meant that it didn't matter that you thought he was a nerd, he was still judging you, and that made you kind of feel some sort of respect for him. Jeb had nothing. Jeb is just this cringing and obsequious toad boy. Yes, the cringiest of the cringe. All right, see if you guys got one more question. Ooh, all right, I found it. Most cringe Civil War general. Well, obviously you got basically everybody in the Army of the Potomac before Grant. Joe Hooker, cringe. Uh, McClellan, huge cringe. Might be number one right there. Just this pompous little turd, scared. Scared of his own shadow. Burnside, obviously, hugely cringe. Uh, On the Confederate side, Braxton Bragg, Wildly cringe. John Bell Hood, amazingly cringe. I do think it's funny that everyone got mad that the two of these huge military bases are named after Confederates, and it is kind of fucked up, but it almost feels like they were trolling when they did that because they're two of the biggest fuck-ups of the Confederate army. Bell Hood, I mean, Hood himself personally destroyed his own army by just heedlessly smashing it against, uh, against the Army of the Cumberland. Like at Franklin, they just had to post up and just watch these dipshits march across the field without even doing an artillery cover the way Lee did before Pickett's charge and just rinse their asses. Oh, Jeb, Jeb Stewart was amazingly cringe. This, this ridiculous Fauntleroy who thought he was think, fight, he thought he was fighting in the English Civil War. He thought he was Prince Rupert of the Rhine. Goes on a gallivant around Gettysburg while they're while they're fighting and has no idea, isn't able to provide any uh, reconnaissance, and then gets uh, gets scattered when attempting to attack the rear by Custer of all people, and then gets owned at Yellow Tavern. So Jeb's are uh, cringe generally. How would I win the war for the Confederates? I wouldn't. Why would I do that? That's absurd. <sighs> You're crazy. No, the only way they had a chance of winning was with uh, uh, European recognition. That's, that's the only way. So you start from that premise and then work outward. I don't really know. I'd have to think about it. All right. I'm going.